The Incredible Hulk, released in 2008 and directed by Louis Leterrier, is the forgotten and much maligned second film in what would come to be known as the Marvel Comics Cinematic Universe. And yet, this is to do the film a massive injustice and disservice. There's nothing inherently wrong or objectively bad about this film. On the contrary, if you're a Hulk fan, this is pretty much a perfect Hulk movie. Sensibly, the film eschews the pretentious tone of the previous Hulk film, directed by Ang Lee, and largely ignores it, rewriting the origin for the character in the opening titles by making it a curious but acceptable amalgam of the disparate comics and TV show origins. Again, this makes sense. By far the widest known and best loved version of the Hulk was the TV show, which ran from 1977 to 1982 and starred Bill Bixby as the renamed David Banner and Lou Ferrigno as his monstrous alter ego. This film takes its cake and chows down heartily, casting TV show fan Ed Norton as the correctly named Bruce Banner, but revamping his origin to include TV staples such as the Gamma device, the experimental nature of the project, and the accidental and self-inflicted overdose of Gamma radiation. Into this, it bakes the comic book elements of it being part of a military experiment, a love interest in Liv Tyler's Betty Ross, and reinstates General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross, played by William Hurt, as the military man obsessed with capturing Banner. Ross sees Banner and the Hulk as being a military project, and thus the military's property. This merging of the two works exceptionally well, the visuals evoking the TV show's opening credit sequence to great effect, replete with shots of schools, injections, swivelling medical chairs, the ominous danger, anger overload button, and, of course, the close-up shot of Banner's eyes just before the transformation takes place. Betty and Ross are hurt, a clear indicator of Banner's lack of control, and then a montage shows us Banner's destructive alter ego at play, and the pursuit by General Ross. It then ties all this in with the previous MCU film, 2008's Iron Man, with mentions of Stark Industries and Nick Fury. And it accomplishes all of this in three minutes, a remarkably effective and economical storytelling feat. As the story opens, we find Banner hiding out in Brazil, still trying to cure or control the raging beast within, learning Brazilian from watching Sesame Street and trying to control his emotions and anger management issues with martial arts training. His channel surfing gives us a nice Bill Bixby cameo as Banner alights upon a rerun of the courtship of Eddie's father before settling back in to let Grover teach him the local language. He works at a bottling plant, shipping out some fruit-based drink, and, as is to be expected, has caught the eye of a beautiful senorita. Zack Penn's script, with dialogue significantly rewritten by star Ed Norton, is wonderfully structured for the first 30 or so minutes, easing the audience in with what is, for all intents and purposes, a big-budget episode of the show. Banner is laying low in a menial job whilst trying to find a cure. He's attracted the eye of not only the senorita, but the boss, who has identified that Banner is far smarter than he lets on, and has him fixing all of his electrical equipment. Banner almost gets in over his head when the girl is being hassled by local scumbags. All it really needs to 
complete the image is the Johannel score. Two story elements are introduced in Act 1. Banner, as Mr Green, is communicating over Messenger with a Mr Blue, who is trying to cure Banner from afar. As you may expect, this fails, and they are forced to try and meet face to face. Secondly, Banner cuts his finger, and a drop of blood ends up in a bottle of the fizzy stuff, which results in a great cameo from Stan Lee, but also leads General Ross directly to his front door. Ross also pulls in Russian-born, English-raised Emil Blonsky, played by professional badass Tim Roth, to help him out. Comics fans know where this is going, but where the Marvel Cinematic Universe has succeeded is that the comics nods are there purely as window dressing. The movies have to stand on their own two feet. Ross tells Blonsky that the Hulk is wanted for murder, but we never learn if this is true. I'm not really down with a Hulk that's a killer. I'm sorry if this offends people who think Wonder Woman should be beheading people or Batman should be the Punisher in a cape, but the minute the Hulk is a murderer, we're not sympathetic toward him. He should be a misunderstood creature. Scurry, perhaps, but not a killer. And before you start, I don't care that that's unrealistic. We're talking about a story in which a £150 weakling turns into a £400 rage monster. That he doesn't kill should not be the thing that snaps your suspension of disbelief. I also believe that the minute the Hulk murders somebody, Banner would turn himself in. Ross uses the blood to locate Banner and Blonsky is on the case. We instantly know Blonsky is a wrong gun because he shoots a dog. Good job John Wick wasn't around. Banner's 158 days without incident is severely hindered by this encounter, not only due to Ross, but also due to a chance meeting with the scumbags who were harassing the pretty senorita earlier on. The chase concludes in the bottling factory, and we see how unhinged Ross is in his attempts to capture his white whale. He's risking many innocent lives to capture Banner if Banner hulks out, which of course he does when the bottling bullies catch up with him. Tension is achieved admirably by Leterrier, who keeps both the transformation and the Hulk off-screen and in darkness for a lot of this confrontation, as Banner deals with the scumbags. But the audience is always aware that Blonsky and his men are still closing in. It's a well-executed scene, the CG for which still holds up, and the reveal that the Hulk can speak a guttural leave me alone is nicely underplayed. The fight is inconclusive. We are still, after all, only in Act 1 of the movie. Banner gets away, ending up in Mexico, with nothing but a pair of torn pants and a snippet of the Lonely Man theme tune to keep him company. With nowhere else to go, he hitchhikes to the US. If you end the film here, at the 32 minute mark, with a freeze frame of Banner walking alone through the forest as the camera pulls back, you have a perfect episode of the TV show. But it's here the film does something clever. Having set up Ross's obsession, Banner's predicament and Blonsky's bloodthirsty nature in a way that eases the regular audience in through a first act that is familiar, it then makes the film more comic booky, but in a really good way. The film then introduces body transference, shady government experiments, and the idea of a super soldier serum, setting up Captain America in an almost blink-and-you'll-miss-it way. It keeps the gags coming in subtle and humorous moments, such as Banner finding a pair of purple stretch pants and him finding his way to Culver University, the place where Bill Bixby's David Banner first experimented on himself. 
Back in the US, Spanner hits up an old friend and in turn hooked back up with Betty Ross. Betty's new boyfriend, Leonard Sampson, played by Modern Family's Ty Burrell, is yet another subtle nod to the comics, Burrell's character being Doc Sampson. But Burrell's character doesn't really go anywhere in the theatrical cut of the film. It's in this middle act that the script does a lot of heavy lifting. Intelligently, instead of front-loading the film, the script lets the first act breathe a little and fills the gaps in in the second act. Banner was working on a super soldier program, initiated by Ross, but Banner didn't know all the details, because Ross, being an asshole, works on the no-need-to-know principle. Norton imbues Banner with the same sensitivity and likability that Bixby did, making Banner a sympathetic character, especially when we learn what happened to him was due to Ross lying about the project. His relationship with Betty is well handled as well, with Norton and Liv Tyler building up a believable rapport in very little screen time. As we get into the more comic-y aspects of the story, we also bring Blonsky back, teasing his growing obsession, but one with power, not with the Hulk specifically. Blonsky is injected with Ross's version of the serum that created Banner, but it's not as effective as Ross hoped. Blonsky will become a foe of equal ability for the title character to fight, but he's not quite there just yet. It's similar in a lot of ways to the memorable episode of the TV show The First, in which Banner discovered another man with a similar malady as he. The reveal that Betty is Ross's daughter is well done for non-comics readers who didn't already know that little piece of backstory. Another example of Marvel playing as a surprise for the regular audience, what is commonly known by comics readers. With all the pieces in place, Ross tracks Banner to Culver and lets Blonsky loose. This time the Hulk out is on full display and the Hulk is seen in broad daylight. Featuring far better CG than in the previous film, this still looks alright over a decade later. The Hulk benefiting here from not growing larger. And it gives long-time Hulk comics fans what they want. The Hulk versus the military. Once again, we see the folly of what Ross is doing. He's caused all of this. If he'd have monitored Banner until he was alone, this could have all been avoided. And then we start to ask questions, as in the comics, as to who is the worst, Ross or the Hulk. Is Ross's obsession ultimately more dangerous than the Hulk himself? After all, who gets Betty almost killed? It isn't the Hulk. William Hurt is great in this role, fully investing in and making Ross a believer that he is in fact doing the right thing. However, enough of such navel-gazing. The Hulk is fighting. And it's a great fight until Blonsky pushes the Hulk too far and he kicks Blonsky into a tree, mashing his bones to powder. Hey, as you Zack Snyder fans are pointing out when we talk about Superman flying a man through a wall, he didn't kill him. The film draws heavily from the comics. From the Hulk looking like a Dale Keown drawing to scenes lifted from Return of the Monster by Bruce Jones and John Romita Jr. and Hulk Grey by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. It's in these moments that we see why the Marvel movies have been successful. They respect the source material but know when it needs updating or amending. The references are subtle, such as mentions of Jack McGee or Jim Wilson. Little nods to make those in the know smile without affecting the story or hanging a neon sign over the gag. Banner decides he has no choice but to make contact with Mr. Blue, a.k.a. Sam Stearns, and he and Betty make their way to New York. 
Stearns, played with quirky glee by Tim Blake Nelson, is an almost banner, a great piece of writing and casting that foreshadows where the character would go had there been sequels. Which is the really sad thing about the movie, which is that it didn't get, and now won't, get a sequel. Unlike other film studios, who so desperately want what Marvel accomplished without actually putting in the work, hello Universal's MonsterVerse, they get so bogged down in setting up the sequels, they forget that this movie has to work on its own, or you don't get any sequels. The Incredible Hulk sets up potentials for the future without ever bringing this movie to a grinding halt, and it's sad that the film won't ever now get a sequel for reasons we'll get into later on. One of the things the movie doesn't get credit for is its almost perfect three-act structure, with the first act ending when Banner wakes up in Mexico, and the second act ending when Banner is captured by Ross. It also ratchets up its tension very well. It's a surprise to learn that the movie had about 45 minutes cut out because the film, at a taut 1 hour 52 minutes, is a crackingly edited and well-paced film. There's a small fan base of people who seem to want to see every last scrap of footage. I'm not one of them. Give me a tightly edited and constantly moving movie rather than a bloated 3 hour snorefest any day of the week. I'm also unsure if this extra footage, which is available as deleted scenes on the Blu-ray and the DVD, was incorporated back into the novel by Peter David, as, until I was writing this for this show, I didn't even know there was a novel of this film. Stern tells Banner he's been working with whatever it is that's affected Banner, and Stern's altruistic though his motives may be, is told that his research needs to be destroyed. Stearns only sees the benefits of Banner's work, healing, giving strength to people who don't have it, whereas Banner only sees the detrimental effects it's had on his life, and, more importantly, how it can be weaponized. However, with Banner injected with a potential cure, Ross shows up and takes him easily, and bemoans that if Banner's taken the Hulk from him, he'll be locked up forever, which seems to be a violation of his rights, but Ross doesn't really seem to be concerned with that kind of thing. This flipping of the character, Ross now moving into the bad guy role, whereas before we did have some measure of sympathy and empathy for him, is again well handled by the script and the actors. Blonsky forces Stearns into attempting to duplicate the accident that created the Hulk, creating an abomination. I'll give you that that was a pretty groan-inducing line, and when it goes badly, Blonsky is delighted by the power he now possesses, his loss of humanity not being an issue for him. Blonsky has also been a nice character study, a man bred for war. That's all he's known and all he's ever known and all he's ever wanted. The thing about being the Hulk, his loss of self, that terrifies Banner, delights Blonsky. Ross gets what he wants, a super soldier weapon, only to find it's the epitome of be careful what you wish for. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, you have accused certain movies before of being crappy CG boss fights in the final act, and bemoaned this, saying it isn't interesting or dramatically rich. Well, yes, lovely listener, I have said that, but I've also said that's because it doesn't feel like the fight was personal or had any emotional stakes. What The Incredible Hulk does really well is set up those emotional stakes throughout the film. 
Ross wants a Hulk he can use for his own purposes. Banner wants rid of it for that same reason, whereas Blonsky wants what Banner has, but has neither the humanity nor the intelligence to deal with it. All three characters' viewpoints are symbolised in the fight at the end. A Hulk focused by Banner's humanity, a Hulk-like creature unfocused and uncurring of who he hurts, civilian or aggressor, and Ross's viewpoint caught in the middle. The fight has weight, emotional stakes, and a point. Plus, it's also the Hulk punching the shit out of another monster, and that's what we Hulk comics fans want to see. There are other great touches I haven't mentioned. Banner having to trust the Hulk will come out after his supposed cure because the Hulk has a need for self-preservation, a reference to a deleted scene. Stern's first steps into becoming the leader. The great shot of the Hulk's fist coming out of the floor and towards the camera, again similar to a shot in the Hulk TV show movie pilot. The set-bound city fight, which is the best since Superman 2. The Hulk's look of, won't you just stay down, when the abomination refuses to take his best punch. The Hulk using two halves of a car as boxing gloves. Lou Ferrigno providing the Hulk's voice. Banner using David as an alias. And Ross and Banner forced to team up for the greater good. Another flipping of Ross's character back towards being a not-so-bad guy. There's a lot of property damage here, but the film doesn't linger on it, nor does it make it that the supposed hero causes a lot of it needlessly, something even the light-hearted Tom Holland-starring Spider-Man flicks are guilty of. The Hulk seems to at least try to get the Abomination away from buildings, and throughout the film never forgets that, as in the comics, the relationship between Banner, Betty and Ross is at the heart of everything. The film concludes with Banner hiding out once more, and a desolate and destroyed General Ross being told by Tony Stark that they're putting a team together. The Incredible Hulk was largely ignored for a long time due to behind-the-scenes shenanigans and Universal Pictures holding the rights to the character. The film performed well enough at the box office, but the stink of the Ang Lee film no doubt it kept from being as successful as it could have been. Universal's rights also meant that Marvel couldn't produce another solo Hulk film, so the character has been reduced to playing second fiddle in other people's movies. Sometimes this works well, the Avengers. Sometimes, not so much. Thor Ragnarok, I'm looking at you. Ed Norton not returning to the role is also a reason this film was swept under the carpet, despite it clearly taking place in the MCU due to an uncredited appearance by Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. As with the recent Justice League debacle, the behind-the-scenes stuff, Norton's true reasons for not returning, may never really be known. Norton apparently met with Joss Whedon to discuss his return in The Avengers, a meeting that by all accounts went well. But thereafter, Norton was let go and replaced by Mark Ruffalo, ironically one of the top choices for the role in the first place. Marvel ubermind Kevin Feige was uncharacteristically pissy when referring to Norton's departure, whereas Norton himself has always taken the high ground, remaining diplomatic and neutral. He even recently called the Marvel Cinematic Universe one of the best executions of a business plan in the history of the entertainment industry. Norton had his own vision of where the film should go, a vision that seemed to conflict with where Marvel wanted to take the character. Whatever the reasons, which are now largely irrelevant, Norton moved on. Ruffalo went on to be the first man to portray both Banner and, through motion capture, the Hulk, and will continue his association with the character, having signed on to appear in the upcoming She-Hulk TV show, 
as will, in a surprising piece of casting news, Tim Roth as the Abomination. This shows a thinning of the ice in regards to this film's status as an outlier. Kevin Feige has said that the character Martin Starr plays here is the same character he plays in the Spider-Man movies, and William Hurt finally returned to the role in Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, and apparently will be in the long-delayed Black Widow movie. As to whether he will show up in She-Hulk remains to be seen, as does the long-awaited return of Liv Tyler. The Incredible Hulk is a very underrated movie, and certainly amongst Hulk comics fans, it seems to be more highly regarded than by standard MCU fans. It not being included in certain box set releases and on Disney Plus due to the rights issues with Universal certainly haven't helped with its visibility and reputation. It's currently on Netflix in the UK. However, I find it eminently rewatchable and thoroughly enjoyable. It has none of the bloat of some of the later MCU movies like Captain Marvel, and by eschewing the origin, it doesn't have the feeling of familiarity that exists in films like Doctor Strange. The script is better than people give it credit for. The actors are all committed, and with very little in the way of winking at the audience. And the SFX still hold up quite well, with a few exceptions. It's much better than the Ang Lee film, walking that line between making grittier in the Chris Nolan way while still capturing the feel of the comics. It's far better than its reputation deserves, and any of those tedious lists on formerly good websites like Comic Book Resources that always put this at the bottom are a surefire way for me to not read the rest of the list. It isn't the best Marvel film, but it does show that they had a game plan from the beginning, and even when they make a supposed misfire, there's always something worthwhile there. As for Banner, don't make him hungry. Oh, wait, no, that's not right. Dr. Robert Bruce Banner, physician, scientist, searching for a way to advance human potential to the next level when an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now, whenever Bruce Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. <laughs> The creature is driven by rage and pursued by the American military. As far as I'm concerned, that man's whole body is property of the U.S. Army. The creature is wanted for murders he did not commit. Bruce Banner is a fugitive, and he will remain so until he can find a way to control or cure the raging spirit that dwells within. Okay, email reading time, as somebody somewhere once said. Matt Prather emailed back. Hey Andy, hey Matt. I have enjoyed your look at the Michelinie McFarlane Spider-Man. Spider-Man being one of my favourite comics. I'm in the bag for this kind of content. <laughs> it's the content I'm here for. Amazing, and then later the adjective-less Spider-Man titles, being the one I found readily available back at the local drugstore. I have them in a long box somewhere, although calling it the adjective-less... Never mind. I'm having a great time recalling some of Todd's less than polished pencils and can't wait to go back and reread the books covered and delight in the energy of said art. Yeah, it does carry 
an awful lot of it, doesn't it? But it's very energetic artwork. Michelani's stories are fun as well. For a while after the death of Gwen Stacy, I turned my back on Spider-Man. I still feel traumatised by this, completely inconsequential to my real-life storyline from seemingly endless years ago. I mean, Superman never broke Lois's neck, no matter how many other men she was set to marry in her own title. The fact that I had to look away when my eyes glanced over that panel probably puts me somewhere on the spectrum, but I digress. I got over it to some degree and enjoyed the adventures of Spidey during the issues you've covered. Thanks for the wonderful episode and letting me process my comics trauma, Matt Prather. Well, Matt, that's why we're here. Sit down and show me on the doll where the Spider-Man comic affected you. (laughs) See, the thing with Gwen was dead long before I started reading. So it was just a fait accompli that Gwen Stacy was dead. It was was grandfathered into the, the, the project. You know, when I started reading Spider-Man comics. So, you know, it's never bothered me really that Gwen's dead. It's it's one of those things, isn't it? It's what Douglas Adams said about technology. That technology that existed before you were born has always been there and always will be. Technology that comes into being while you're in the prime of your learning life, like when you're a kid into your mid-twenties or whatever, is brand spanking new and will never be beaten. And technology that is invented after you are past the point of being able to comprehend what's going on is of the devil. And I think it's, it's similar with the death of Gwen. It was always there for me. Whereas if you were reading comics brand new when that happened, that was probably the... Uh, the bridge too far for you, I would imagine. I don't know, though. Uh, Rob McCarthy's emailed in. Rob's first real fan letter. What, to anybody? Just generally or to me? It sounds like the writer on Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man, David Michelini, was trying to make the chameleon a big deal. But, the, you know, the chameleon is a big deal. You know, he's the first supervillain that Spider-Man fought. I mean, I say supervillain. I mean, all that retconning on that he was Russian and then he was... Well, I think he was always Russian. He was always a commie spy or something, wasn't he? As pretty much everyone was in the early Stan Lee comics. Uh, and then he was Craven's half-brother or something. I don't know where that came from, but, you know, whatever. Meanwhile, long ago in Hey Kids, All-Star Batman is awful. No, 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 no. If you read it as a piss take of all the people who read Dark Knight Returns and took the wrong lesson from it, it's really funny. That's just my opinion. Kurt Gruenwald emailed in uh, with the PS2, the PS62 thing, which I didn't have a clue what PS was. Unless it stood for pissing stupid, I don't know. Lots of people mentioned, as Kirk is about to, that it stood for public school in the New York school system. Ryan Daly, I think, was the first one to mention it on social media. But I think a couple of others chimed in in the different places where I post the episode. So forgive me if I don't remember everyone who mentioned it. But Kirk is the only one actually emailed in to say it's big city terminology for public school 62. There are so many in the Big Apple and other cities that instead of giving names of famous people like Emerson, Roosevelt, Washington, Bryant, or locations like Central or Green Meadow, they are all simply numbered. It's possible they are numbered according to the year that they were built, therefore PS62 might refer to 1962, and if this is the case, then it's possible that this is also a nod to the year that Spider-Man first appeared. But I don't know that for a fact. It seems like a pretty good guess, though, doesn't it? Uh, I was impressed by the mega promo for Acts of Vengeance coming this March, but nobody told me it was coming until I heard your promo. Wasn't that the point of a promo? <laughs> that it promotes 
got clues in the name that it promotes something that you're not aware of i don't know i almost spit out my drink when i heard dr bill asking for a warm diet mountain dew that's that's bill's diet of choice though isn't it Third, after the promo, the letter segment was quite loud, bordering on overmodulation. I don't know what changed, but you want to check that show and possibly pull the volume down and reload your friend Kirk. If something like that happens, it is normally because either I recorded the email segment at a separate time, and I either caught the gain button when I pushed the microphone out of the way or brought it back or whatever, or the cat has trampled over my keyboard and altered a setting, which happens more than you may think. Because that's what cats do, isn't it? Um, and the rest of it, he's got a PS about listening to the prophets, but that's about listening to the prophets and not me. And it's all about me on this show. Thank you, Kirk, Robert and Matt, or Rob, for emailing in. It's nice to hear from you all. Okay, take care. Everything's going to be fine. Email me, email, like he-man. Email he-man. I've made that joke before, haven't I? Because it's a common trip of the tongue hey kids comics at virginmedia.com you can also facebook and twitter and i am on instagram but i don't think i have a look at it too many social it's instagram seems a lot nicer than twitter though maybe i should migrate to instagram rather than twitter uh, there's a reason it's called shitter and um email me drop me a line whatever and i'll see you next time take care goodbye